And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not lightly regard the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whose father does not discipline him? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, for we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those that have been trained by it. Lord God, our Father, as we look into these things, we just pray for your blessing, that you would open our hearts and minds to see these things and to participate in your glory, Lord God, through your spirit revealing to us your word. Let it be living and vibrant to us today as we accept these things as the very words of the very God who created our spirits. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So here when we get to verse 12, because of all these things that we've already seen, we move on to this. And in talking about this, He gives us things to do correspondent to the great glory that Christ has already given us. So then he gives us this list of things that are correspondent to the Christian life that has already been made full in Christ. Now we all know about this this tragic thing that happens to us. We come to know Christ and our eyes are opened and our ears are unstopped and we can speak the words of the living God. And yet this life is still a struggle and still painful and there's sickness and there's death. And he wants to encourage us with what he just said about Jesus. None of you in your resistance and struggle with sin have gone all the way to the shedding of blood the way Jesus Christ did for you. So here he he gives this speech and he says, Therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone. Now here's where we're going to get to where the rubber hits the road in this one. Most of our struggles in this life have to do with this thing right here. You know it's always scary when we hear wars and rumors of wars and conflict between people. Because we know that almost every conflict comes down to its source within sin. You know from the very beginning everybody has different ideas and different interpretations of what the nature of sin was. But most people bring it back to that word pride, right? Well the thing about pride is this. It was not just disobeying God. It was wanting to be the God of our own existence. God has all glory and we were created to serve him and be like him. And yet when we want all glory, that is the center of all sin. And so striving for peace with everyone is what we were made for, but it's hard in this life. And for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Here's how you would fail to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled, which is the antonym of holy. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. I think it was a pot of beans. For you know that afterward he desired to inherit the blessing which was rejected. For he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Now that's a tough lesson, right? We talked a lot here. In this theological tradition, we put a lot of emphasis on blessings and curses. Blessings and curses. It's not pleasant subject matter, but the Bible's all about it. And it's the main vehicle through which we understand being in the covenant and outside of the covenant. We all have a pretty easy understanding of the fact that not everyone is in Christ. And so we encourage everyone to come into Christ with us. And we do it by way of making a covenant with God where we become his people, even though previously we were not his people. And so we, like Jacob, we want the blessing. Now, you know all the stuff that Jacob did to get the blessing from his brother Esau, right? He lied, he tricked, he deceived. And God, in those stories, he never approves the lying, tricking, or deceiving. But he likes his zeal. Now, Esau, he had no zeal for the blessing. He was willing to trade it away for almost nothing that was an enticement in this earthly world. And yet, at the same time, not having the blessing, he fell into sin. And then later, of course, he wanted the blessing. And you know what God said? No. Your brother gets the blessing because he valued it. And so, Christian, this is given to you as an analogy in the New Testament so that you will have zeal for the blessing that God wishes to give. Now, we know that in our theology, the blessing that he wishes to give might not be that you are rich and famous and healthy and all of that. That's not, the blessing is spiritual, not merely carnal. But look at these words that are used in this. Look at the words he uses to describe it. He wants you to lift, strengthen, straighten, heal, strive, and see. These are the things. So, you know, these ideas, people... Uh, You know, especially theologically conservative people, they have a hard time right now with the psychological effects of the gospel. Because some people take the psychological effects of gospel, like happiness in this world and just a general feeling of well-being, and they make that the gospel itself, which is a little dangerous, right? Because it does not always work that way. But that doesn't mean that that's not true. The apostle here is definitely trying to teach us there's a certain status that has been thrust upon you Not because of you, but as a gift from God. And these are the things that it should produce in you. You should be lifted. You should be strengthened. Your path should be straighter. You should be healed. And you should strive to see these things. And then he contrasts it with this from that verse 12 and on. Bitterness, trouble, defilement, immorality, and unholiness. You know, there's these two aspects to holiness, right? One is the fact that you're holy whether you like it or not. Christ's blood is upon you and God accepts you as holy in the beloved. You can't get it. You can't lose it. You're holy in Christ. And then there's this other aspect where he wants you to live as holy. He doesn't want you to live as the lost. He doesn't want you to live as the world. He wants you to live as holy because you already are holy. Then he talks about afterward when desire and blessing, and rejection, even if there's repentance, and it's sought with tears, some aspects of it are too late. 
Now, you're not children, except for the ones of you that are children. So I can tell you there are consequences in this life. We read that whole part of that chapter about God's discipline, and that means in this life. It doesn't mean in the next life. It means in this life. Some of you already know that there have been consequences in your life for things that you did when you wandered from the Lord or when you did certain things. And you can see that the hand of God was upon you and he has blessed you now. But you went through a time when you were under the discipline and displeasure of God. And that's why that chapter is in there to explain to you it's not because God didn't love you. And it's not because he wasn't on your side. Like your father who used to pull out the switch once in a while to straighten you out, not because he hated you, but because he loved you, when your heavenly father corrects you in this life, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you and he's training your soul in righteousness. As a matter of fact, your earthly father is a fallible figment and representation of the true and perfect love of your heavenly father. Is he not? Now, we can all think of all the ways that our earthly fathers fail us, but at the same time, at the end of the day, our Heavenly Father never does. And so last week we talked about the difference between faith and saving faith, because they both come up in the Bible, and it's a little confusing. The demons seem to have faith in a way, but that's if you're just talking about knowledge or an understanding of the facts, which is not saving faith. Saving faith also includes that you know that Christ died, and you know he died for you. You are in Christ. Making a strange sound. Yeah. And so when we get to faith, it's always coupled with these other two, which are not identical. Do you guys know the famous line from 1 Corinthians chapter 13? These three remain, right? Faith, hope, and love. But what's the greatest of these? The greatest of these can only be love if love is not identical to faith and hope. Right? They're different things in the Bible and in our understanding of them as a Christian. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, but the greatest can't be love if love is actually faith and hope. So your believing through which you're justified is not the same as that you're loving, because you're really not. You're not great at that. You're struggling with that. You're striving for that, but you're imperfect at it. God is perfect at it, but you are not perfect at it. Faith is different from hope. Faith is believing God. Hope is believing in a blessing that is coming that has not yet been realized. You live in hope of a resurrection from the dead and a recommitment together with God that you have not yet experienced. So it's almost like hope is anything that's an article of faith which has not yet been received. But your relationship with God, that's not hope. That's now. It has already begun. In some fragile ways, you can interpret it like this. Your spiritual resurrection from the dead has already taken place in Christ. The Spirit of God invaded your soul, opened your eyes. You've seen the truth of the gospel, and you are spiritually alive already now. You're just waiting, sometimes in joy and happiness, and sometimes in anguish, for the things of your body to be made the same as the things of your spirit. So when we talk about these things and we get to faith, hope, and love, love is the thing we struggle with in this life. And sometimes our hope, because hope is always believing in something that has not happened yet, that God has declared to you, but it has not happened yet. In this, you know, uh, you guys might not ever have actually been, you know, selfish or something, but most people have had some kind of a struggle with it. 
And these things that happen to us and that we struggle with often have to do with our relationships with other people. Can you guys see these there? Okay, we went through this in the kids' lesson today, but I thought the kids' lesson is so similar to the adults' lesson that we can go over the kids' lesson and still get something out of it, right? So we were talking about hope, and we talked about this. Did you know that most people feel lonely or unaccepted most of the time? Now, you know, for kids especially, it's important they know that other people feel like them. I don't have to ask them if they feel this way. Statistically, the vast majority of teenagers and younger people, even through college age, feel this way. They feel lonely, and they feel like other people don't accept them or understand them. Now, when we all feel this way, it makes us feel a lot better because they feel just as bad as you do, right? The thing is, for the Christian, you are never alone, and you are never unaccepted. But until you embrace that you have been loved and accepted by God, you will constantly have these struggles with other people that the Apostle Paul is talking about. Did you notice the flow and context of what he said there in that book? First, he talks about all the glories of Christ for you and all the things he's done for you. Then he tells you how to live correspondent to it. Because if you understand Christ, you'll understand yourself. And if you understand yourself, you'll understand your relationships with other people. Many times we've talked about how when you come together in a church, this is your people. Even your earthly family will only last until your bones become dust. But this spiritual family will go on with you forever and ever. And these people around you are the ones that God has given you to hold you spiritually up and strengthen you through this life. These are people who not only love you, they're commanded to love you. And that's pretty good. So here's another one. The reasons that we're afraid of other people and have a hard time making and keeping friends usually have to do with a disturbance in our relationship with God. I mean, why would you be afraid of anybody if you truly embrace God's love for you? And yet we have such a hard time even standing by people in the grocery store. We stand silently and we look in our grocery cart and we count those 50 things again, even though we've looked at them 20 times since we've been in the store, just to not have to make eye contact with somebody. We're afraid of everybody around us and we're afraid of relationships and we're afraid of getting hurt. And we all know that making friendships and reaching out to people in a way is an invitation to some kinds of pain. And yet at the same time, the Apostle Paul's calling you to be stronger than that. In order to be a healthy, happy, stable person that is a blessing to others, you first need to be right in your relationship with God because that will be the platform and the basis for all of your other relationships in life, including your marriage, with your children, with grandparents, with strangers that you meet on the street and the people that you're stuck in a room working with for 20 years. Sooner or later, somebody's going to test that relationship skill, aren't they? They're going to test that ability to reconcile. And so we need peace and hope and love, but... You guys also need friendship. This thing about loneliness that goes on out here, it is a real thing. Now, I know that you struggle with loneliness because just statistically, five out of ten of you struggle on an ongoing basis with loneliness. The church is never to become just a social institution for lonely people to come and hang out with other people. But it does scratch that particular itch. And that's part of God's design for it. It's about Christ and him crucified, but it's also about togetherness 
so that the church always has a place where you can go, where everybody knows your name. You guys remember the song? That's the one. What will it take to make you happy? You know, there's some truth in this. The thing about codependency, did any of you guys read I'm Okay, You're Okay when you were a kid? It was written like in the 70s, and there was this whole thing about don't be codependent. Don't need anyone. And it was incredibly bad for people because every one of you is completely designed to be codependent. You're not really a maid to stand on your own or be strength, strength, strong in and of yourself or be the one that's so strong that everybody leans on you, but you don't lean on anybody. Those are all mythology, Right? Every once in a while, you get one of these guys like Winston Churchill who's just a tank, right? He doesn't care what anybody thinks. That's why he can win wars against everybody. But normal people aren't made that way. We all depend on each other by nature, but we're made to do that. If there's a thing where you're having a crisis of happiness, you really do have to look first at your relationship with God because the joy that comes from knowing Christ transcends anything in this world. And then that flows out into relationships and friendships and family. And so worship and service and fellowship and learning, which is what we're doing right now, and your faithfulness are all tied into this. I'll tell you this right now. You Christians, especially those of you that have walked a few miles in the faith, if there's infidelity in your life or a lack of holiness, you will not be given the gift of happiness. There will be struggle in your mind and soul. And there will be anguish. And when it happens... It will not be the punishment of God. It will be the faithfulness of God disciplining you as a true son or daughter. So if you're living a certain life contrary to what you know you should live, it will create a conflict in the mind, heart, and soul. And you are not going to avoid the consequences of that. So we live right in some ways for our own benefit. In Romans chapter 5, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, in other words, since you've been justified apart from your good works, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming to you, you already have peace. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace by which we stand, and we boast in the hope and the glory of God. Okay, so now things are going to get interesting. But what if you don't? What if it gets serious? Well, the Bible outlines these things of how to reconcile and fix broken relationships between you and other people. And this is one of the most important ones. This is Jesus teaching them. You know, we're just going to have to do it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to do that thing I do where, you know, I I make you read the whole chapter. And you will go home stronger and more edified and slightly more weary, but at the same time, the end is worthy of the means. In chapter 18, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom? And calling to him a child. He put him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You remember all those times when the Jews, when somebody would die and they would hire extra people to come and cry with them? They were a weeping, crying, emotionally healthy people because they knew how to mourn and weep. And we went through this time in American history when guys were not allowed to have an emotional life because strong men did not show emotion. And that did nothing good for anybody. I'm telling you right now, it's not the biblical measure of these things. You're supposed to be sad when things are sad and happy when things are happy. You're only not supposed to be sad when things are happy and happy when things are sad because that's weird, right? That's unhealthy. 
But normal ranges of emotion are completely human and designed by God. Whoever receives such a child as in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptations come. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to come out, to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. Okay, so I mean, that's harsh language. But you know it's an analogy, right? I don't want anybody poking their eyes and stuff. He's telling you the truth through a means that's available. He doesn't want you to actually cut off your hand. He wants you to stop sinning, but mainly because of the effects that it has on other people. See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that heaven, in heaven, their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of that one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Here's the way God loves you. And now we kind of get to the point here of what we're talking about today. If your brother sins against you, all of those warnings he's given have been about your relationships with other people. And now he talks about your relationship with the brother that sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him Alone, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, this is not a suggestion. This is a rule. This is a law of God. A lot of people are like, New Testament, we don't have laws of God. Oh, we got plenty. We got all the same ones as the Old Testament, except for some things about shellfish. But all the moral ones, they're still going strong. Now, he says, you're not to sit and dwell on and hate your neighbor in your heart. He commands you to do this uncomfortable thing where you initiate relationship by going to your brother that's offended you and telling them why you're mad. He does not want you sitting there in a seat boiling at another person in the church for the next 20 years until they realize their offense against you and finally repent. Now, I have found that 90% of problems in the church are cured by just people obeying this. Your brother, your sister are not usually so unreasonable that if you talk to them about something, there will not be quick resolution of these things. Then he says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, anything that's not cured that way, it'll be cured this way. You find somebody that both of you trust to be a mediator between the two of you, and you sit down and you talk it out. Isn't that completely common sense, right? Jesus isn't asking you to do something crazy. He's not saying, go climb a mountain. He's not saying, go swim an ocean. He's saying, sit down and talk it out, right? Then your heart will be at peace because you won't have any conflict between you and your neighbor or your brother. If he refuses, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now the context for these verses that are usually very poorly understood, when it says tell it to the church, it does not mean get out your Rolodex or your friends list, start posting on Facebook. It means you go 
and you bring it to the people at the church that have already been chosen and approved as wise people that can resolve disputes and problems. You bring it to the elders, and you sit down with the elders, and they hear from each of you, and they come to a resolution of these things. It might be that you are not actually completely, perfectly right in every instance. But perhaps neither is your neighbor. And they help you to resolve these things. Now, if they find that your neighbor has wronged you in some way, what it's saying here is there's going to be a binding in heaven that happens on earth. If they are obviously known to be wrong and have wronged you, and the church says you have violated this rule of love and care for your neighbor, when it says treat them like a Gentile, it means put them out. Now, I know most of you don't come from churches or traditions that actually do this, but you've got to remember, this is the old church. It's 500 years old. We don't have no new rules, and we haven't forgotten the old ones. So if somebody is personally in a provocative sin and has sinned against other people, especially in the congregation, and we talk to them about it and they will not repent, we will ask them to leave. Some people, that's very comforting to them because that means it's a real church that does the real stuff that the Bible really says. And some people will look at that and go, I wouldn't go to a church that actually exercised these things. I just came here to hear some good football analogies. This is Jesus, okay? You're a Christian, which means a follower of Christ. This is Christ's rule for you. He doesn't have another one. We're not allowed to just dispense with the things that are uncomfortable. Most of us, including myself, we went to churches so big that this was practically impossible. When you're in a church with 5,000 people, you can't do this. You don't even know those people. 4,000 of them have never even met the pastor. Right? But in real churches that do real things the way the Bible said to, inevitably... This kind of thing is for the preservation of good relationships with the people. And hopefully such a person would be restored when they repent and come to their senses. When they say to their neighbor that they've offended or that they've harmed in some way, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And then the entire community can come together around that person and restore them to a right relationship. But without the rule, you got nothing. Here's what he says as he goes on through that. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm among them. How many of you have heard that verse? Well, now you know the context of this verse. That's what it means. It means that God's justice will be present where two or three are gathered in his name, exercising spiritual wisdom. You know, sometimes it comes up, people want to hear the voice of God and stuff. Well, you know, every time you read the Bible, you're hearing the voice of God. Your special voice of God, where God kind of tells you stuff now and then that just happens to agree with your fleshly impulses, that's probably not the voice of God. That's probably the voice of you. It might be the voice of something else. I don't know. But here's the thing. God does choose to speak generally and most specifically through his church in history. If you're in a room with ten people that you trust, and all of them say, brother, on this, you're wrong. This isn't right. That's the voice of God to you. As we go on through this, then he goes to the parable of the unforgiving servant. Because now your brother has come to you and he has asked for forgiveness. What should your response be? Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times, which Peter thought was crazy. So uh, uh, Jesus is going to give him a whole new lesson in crazy, isn't he? Seven times? It couldn't possibly. Jesus will say like six, right? 
Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is seven times seven, completeness of completeness. There's no limitation to the amount of forgiveness you might not have to give your neighbor if they come to you seeking forgiveness. Has God been a promiscuous forgiver for you? Don't you think you have to be a promiscuous forgiver for your neighbor? What do you have that you didn't earn? Everything. What does your neighbor really have to earn from you to get your forgiveness? God's been pretty good at handing out the grace, right? So we also have to hand out the grace. Then in verse 23 it says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is is compared to a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents, which is billions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold into slavery with his wife and children and all that he had, payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed a hundred denarii, you know, 20 bucks, and seizing him, he began to choke him. Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the whole debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him again and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have, shouldn't you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Woo! These verses are every bit as uncomfortable for me as they are for you, Right? Okay, so it's an analogy. It's not a real thing. It didn't happen, right? But who are you in the analogy? Are you the master? (laughs) Oh. You know, Jesus doesn't let anybody ride for free. We all get the same correction, right? That thing that he talked about, about discipline, reading a passage like this is spiritual discipline. It's a lighter form, but it's a correction from God that when you understand it, it's supposed to change your framework and the way you do things. If you've been forgiven an infinite debt and nobody that you've ever interacted with has done such a thing to you as to create an infinite debt, should you not forgive these trivialities that happen between you and your neighbor on an ongoing basis? And what's wrong with you if you don't? Did you understand what Paul said about the Lord Jesus Christ, about him dying with you and shedding his blood to cover your sin? How much more should you be a mediator, in a lesser sense, between God and man to pray for them and to forgive their sins also? That's the model. It's a little bit ouchy, isn't it? Lord God, our Father. As you have given us these things and you have taught us these things, please make us, Lord God, forgivers. That even if you have given yourself for us, let us give ourselves for each other, Lord God. Let us have reconciliation and let us have peace. 
Let us be reasonable and not reasonless, not like animals that bite and snap and devour, Lord God, but as people that give grace and mercy, even in the place of justice. We thank you for all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. People of God, our next hymn is number 44. Number 44 in your hymnal. How great thou art.
going to declare the blessing now. Not that I can bless you, but that the Lord Jesus Christ blesses you, that if you have believed his message and his word in Scripture, that all of the blessings thereof, they are for you. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hello, little sweetheart. I'm so happy to see you.